Today, Boris Johnson gave a speech to Conservative Party conference where he promised to level up the country. On the same day, the cruel £20 cut to universal credit, that's £20 every week, came into effect. There is now a gaping divide between Boris Johnson's rhetoric and reality. I should probably say, not, not for the first time. I'll be analysing the speech and the context surrounding it with Dahlia. Gabriel, Dahlia, how are you doing? I'm doing well, Michael. How are you doing? Yeah, I'm fine. Spent more than I, more time than I would usually like to watching Boris Johnson speak and then rewatching it to find the right clips. Um, so I'm definitely going to have oh, a day the off. Lord's work. A day off, Bojo the Lord's tomorrow. Work, I'm telling you. <laughs> um, but we do have a great show lined up for you. There have been lots of Tories saying very ridiculous things over the past couple of days. Boris Johnson's conference speech was light on policy announcements. Instead, the Prime Minister used the opportunity to repeat the talking points he made to Andrew Marr on Sunday. The Tories will bring about a high-wage Britain. And that is the direction in which this country is going now, towards a high-wage, high-skill, high-productivity, and yes, thereby, a low-tax economy. That that is what the people of this country need and deserve. in which everyone can take pride in their work and in the take pride in their work and in the quality of their work and yes it will take time and sometimes it will be difficult but that was the change that people voted for in 2016 and that was the change that people voted for again powerfully in 2019 and to deliver that change we will get on with our job of uniting and leveling up across the UK the greatest project that any government can embark on Boris Johnson's argument that raids, wages will rise sorry, is based on the idea that with less immigration, firms will have to pay more. The difficult times ahead is a reference to the unstocked shelves and queues for petrol that will suffer due to la labour shortages in the meantime, while that new high-wage equilibrium is reached. I spoke at length um, on Monday to James Meadway about whether all the economics of this stacks up. He suggested rising wages were probably more to do with COVID-19 than immigration. Obviously, Boris Johnson wants to make this all about Brexit. Johnson also positioned himself as a prime minister bold enough to fix problems his predecessors shirked. And after decades of drift and dither, this reforming government, this can-do government, this government that got Brexit done, that's getting the COVID vaccine rollout done, is going to get social care done. And we are going to deal with the biggest underlying issues of our economy and society. The problems that no government has had the guts to tackle before. And I mean the long-term structural weaknesses in the UK economy. It's thanks to the vaccine rollout that we now have the most open, open economy and the fastest growth in the G7. As usual, there was a lot that was misleading in that section of the speech. Boris Johnson hasn't solved the social care crisis. He's just found a mechanism whereby a regressive tax hike will allow the wealthy to pass on their homes to their children. Another lie was that we have an open economy because of our vaccine rollout. In fact, we were overtaken by comparable countries on vaccines a long time ago. We have a more open society because as a society, we're tolerating more deaths. We'll talk a bit more about that later. Finally, alongside the lies and bluster, there were a lot of jokes. They were thrown in with some red meat for the Tory base. 
You know, there's people gluing themselves to, to roads. I don't call them legitimate protesters like some Labour councillors do. I think some Labour councillors actually glue themselves to roads. I say they're a confounded nuisance who are blocking ambulances, stopping people going about their daily lives. And I'm glad... And I'm glad Pretty is taking new powers taking new powers to insulate them snugly in prison where they belong. That was a reference to Priti Patel's announcement that police will be given powers to stop people attending protests if they have reason to believe they'll be disruptive. All fairly chilling. Dahlia, what did you make of Boris Johnson's conference speech? It was clearly about him solidifying the coalition that won him the 2019 uh, election, which is essentially, you know, promises of investment of, of, that are specifically targeted towards white working class people and also the more classic ideas of who makes up the Tory base. So I'm thinking homeowners, you know, people with property wealth, sub, people living in the suburbs and sort of the very, very rich, also generally white people. Uh, the the mobilisation of whiteness here, specifically through, as you sort of mentioned, the the idea that wages will be higher because immigrants are fewer uh, is is an old tale as old as time. It's sort of a classic. And the project of whiteness is essentially about using those kinds of devices in order to create cultural and social bonds between very rich white people and white working class people in ways that conceal the vast material and economic and political gulf that exists between those two categories. So, you know, it doesn't, it also doesn't help that Boris Johnson is talking about higher wages at a time that Keir Starmer is losing members of his shadow cabinet because he, they're being briefed to actually not back a, even just a £15 minimum wage. So that's, you know, what happens when you lower the bar for opposition. It makes it very easy for the people that you are trying to take out of power to outflank you on your own Grounds. All they have to do is just pay a little bit of lip service. But the key issue here is, you know, as the promise of whiteness often is, it, it, it's a false promise. Boris Johnson does not believe in the kinds of massive state intervention that would be required in order to actually boost wages significantly in our in our current system. I have to be clear, not just wages are not the issue, but also working conditions and uh, the security and the quality of the work that are that is available uh, to people. It's no good having good wages when the work that you're doing is in incredibly poor conditions and is also not consistent enough for you to feed your family and to feed and to, to feed those who rely on you. The reason that Boris Johnson could not deliver on this is because, as we know, the flatlining of wages in this country is not due to increased movement of people across borders. It's due to systemic racism, which leads to racialized people and migrants being forced to accept poorer working conditions than are essentially acceptable for, for most uh, citizens and most white people, but also because of the destruction of trade union power, the destruction of labor power, which has tipped the balance so heavily in favor of bosses and away from workers being able to bargain for their own conditions and bargain for the wages that they need in order to do their work. It's because businesses have basically been able to design the British economy to look exactly the way it needs to look for them to maximize their profits and keep their labor costs down. So essentially, given that 
you know, Boris Johnson is not against either of those things. And even if he himself was against those things, the Tory party certainly isn't against those things. And Rishi Sunak most certainly isn't against those things. So essentially, I just see this as kind of a political political lip service being paid in order to keep a particular coalition together that isn't being helped by the fact that Keir Starmer is being out is being very easily outflanked on key sort of social issues and well not social issues economic issues such as a minimum uh, a good minimum wage uh, and is essentially not going to play out in reality because it goes against the fundamentals of what the Tory party ideology is. Mm. It's probably worth saying Keir Starmer hasn't been technically outflanked because the Labour Party position is to have a £10 minimum wage now. Um, Boris Johnson apparently um, is going to, in a few days or a couple of weeks, announce that the minimum wage is going up to £9.42. Or was it £9.48? I think £9.42. So, you know, the Labour Party can still say we are right now advocating for a higher minimum wage than the Conservatives. I suppose one response to that would be who does the, the public currently associate with high wages now, Boris Johnson or Keir Starmer? Boris Johnson has been incredibly effective at, at making high wages the issue. You've got Tory ministers going on the radio all, all day today with hosts saying, are you sure we can afford these high wages? And they're saying, oh, I think we might be able to. And all the people listening are sort of like, I kind of like that Tory minister who's arguing for high wages. Um, the Labour Party probably should have got in there first. But it's also worth saying that probably they could have done that. I, I don't think that the £15 minimum wage necessarily is the only way to do that. You're right, of course, about, you know, obviously cutting off migration isn't the only way to raise wages. You could have given lots of power to trade unions without the disruption we're seeing now and without our country becoming a less welcoming place to migrants. So we could have had our cake and eat it, as it were. We could have had high wage, high wages and an open economy. Boris Johnson has sort of decided to to make it um, seem as if they those two things are mutually exclusive, which they are not. I want to go back to one specific lie, which I mentioned from that speech. This is the one that frustrates me most. As I say, we, we won't go through all of them because that would be the whole show. The one I do want to talk about, though, is with reference to vaccination. So what Boris Johnson said in that speech is that the reason we have a relatively open economy, economy right now compared to our peers is that we have very high vaccination rates. This has become kind of a, a reality that has been rewritten by Boris Johnson, widely accepted by the mainstream media, definitely widely accepted by the people in that conference hall. And it's simply not true. So our vaccine rollout was initially quick, but right now we have been overtaken by many of our peers. I've got here on this graph, the G7 countries and I've also added Portugal just because it's got an especially impressive rollout. So Portugal, not part of the G7, 88%. Then we get down to these G7 countries. Canada, Italy, France and Japan all have higher vaccination rates than the United Kingdom. So Boris Johnson is suggesting we still are leaders of the world when it comes to vaccines. No, we fell behind. What he is correct about is that we have a more open economy than other countries right now. There are obviously many benefits to that. We talk about that on the show. None of us are saying, oh, we, you know, wouldn't it be great if we had more restrictions? But what Boris Johnson is not being honest about is the cost of that. Because it's not that we have such a good vaccination program that we can open up the economy without a cost. No, opening up the economy has had a massive cost, which is that Britain has a much higher death rate still right now than most of our peers. 
Um, so you've got Canada, France, Italy, Germany, and Japan here, all way below the United Kingdom when it comes to daily deaths per million people. There are places doing worse in the UK, especially the US, because of their vaccine skepticism. There are a lot of people in vulnerable categories who haven't been vaccinated in the United States. I just wanted to, to emphasize that because I do really feel like Boris Johnson has rewritten history here and he has done it in a way where he is really not getting much flack at all. He is still pretending to the public that we don't have to make difficult decisions when it comes to COVID-19 because we are so highly vaccinated. Not true. On the same day that Boris Johnson talked about levelling up the country, his government implemented the biggest cut to benefits in a generation. At midnight on Tuesday, the cut to universal credit came into effect. It means that 4.4 million households will lose an average of £1,000 per year. For 1 million households, the cut will represent a 10% loss of income. The cut will leave the base rate of benefits at their lowest level since 1990. This is a really bad thing, and for millions of people in Britain, it will cause a hell of a lot of pain. Not for the people implementing it, though. And last night at Tory party conference, just an hour after that cut went through, the cabinet minister in charge of universal credit was having the time of her life. Therese Coffey, the, the Secretary of State for Work and Pensions. It's her direct responsibility, the benefits that people receive. It's her department, which will be cutting £20 a week to 4.4 million households, which we're told by, by NGOs and charities will push 290,000 children below the poverty line. While that's happening, while that cut is going into effect, Therese Coffey is singing that she's having the time of her life at Tory party conference. This cut to universal credit, I think, is, is where Boris Johnson quite rightly is most vulnerable. He's up there saying, I'm going to put more money in your pockets. And there are 4.4 million households who are, after today, £20 a week poorer. That's £1,000 a year, £80 a month. These are really significant sums of money. And the Tories just seem to be pushing through with it. We also know that this is really hitting people in, in red wall seats, seats that the Conservatives are supposed to care about. So I, I wonder why they seem to be so willing to go ahead with this. I mean, that clip is pretty sickening to watch. And it, to me, it's, it's capitalism in a sort of nutshell. And it, it's difficult to watch, but also at least it's honest. I mean, this is how our political system and how our economy has been run, especially for the past 10 years, but also further back than that taking decisions that are going to have immense consequences on people's lives. You know, how many times do we have to hear stories of people literally starving to death in Britain because they're not able to, you know, pass a means test in order to get access to their universal credit? And then when they do get access to universal credit, it's made basically impossible to live on. And those decisions are being taken so lightly that the people who take them and who announce them are able to push it to the back of their mind and, and, have, and have a great time and have a great party on the same day as they announce something that will destroy the lives of so many people. And it also speaks to the fact that we don't see accountability from the media. If you think about the response when Angela Rayner called Tories scum and the pleas of decorum, the pearl clutching 
that took place. Now, I'm no particular fan of Angela Rayner, but, you know, clearly that was used as an excuse to kind of talk about the lack of decorum and the lack of professionalism of of Angela Rayner. And, you know, that was in no part related to probably the fact that she is, you know, a northern woman from working class roots. And yet this this very real disregard for for people's livelihoods and the the lightness and the frivolity with which these kinds of decisions are taken is sort of left without much interrogation by by the mainstream media. And so this is why Boris Johnson is able to convincingly make the Tories sound like they are the party of putting money in the pockets of working class people, despite, A, the slash on universal credit or the the refusal to keep on the £20 addition, uh, but also in terms of, you know, the national insurance tax hike. Uh, which, as we talked about in previous shows, disproportionately is impacting middle class and lower middle class and working class people. So the fact that, that that Boris is able to and the Conservative Party are able to credibly promote themselves as this party, even though, as you outlined before, their policies are in no way helpful to putting money into working class people's pockets, putting money into the pockets of people who need them. It's because these parts of the story, such as the Secretary of State for Work and Pensions dancing and singing karaoke after she slashed the budgets of so many working class people, that is not that part of the story is not question and is not highlighted in the way that it really needs to be. We're going to talk a bit more about universal credit in a moment. So let's go on. The £20 cut to universal credit will push 290,000 children below the poverty line. That might be why Tory ministers often shirk from defending it. In their place comes Tory grandees who no longer have to hide their reactionary side. This was former cabinet minister Edwina Curry on Good Morning Britain. What we have to realise is that we've got something like a million vacancies being advertised in the country. We have record numbers of vacancies. We have whole industries desperate for more people to come into work from catering in the care industry, food processing. Uh, Businesses are actually desperate and pushing up wages. So it doesn't make any kind of sense for us to pay people to stay home. What we really want is for people to get out there and get the jobs. Edwina Curry, not everybody on Universal Credit doesn't have a job. Mm. 40% of those on universal credit are already in Major- work. The, yeah. yeah, but the majority of people on universal credit don't have a job. And that's that's where we can start. And we're talking about a very large numbers of people. Uh, one of the things the government is doing is helping those people, actually putting more money into supporting and tutoring and mentoring people to get back into work, sometimes <clears throat> to get a job for the first time. Uh, that can be difficult. We recognize that. Sometimes to make better choices about how they live and, and uh, how they spend their money. Uh, there's a whole host of opportunities. There's 30 million people out there in the country who are listening to me as I say, the best benefit is a job. And that's very important. And but it's wrong sorry, for us to be paying to people back. to stay home yeah, but when the economy needs okay. people. Just a minute. The economy actually needs people to get into work and we need people to get into better jobs and we need to push employers to pay them better and to look after their workforce better. That was Edwina Curry talking all sorts of nonsense. We'll break down why so much of that was incredibly misleading in a moment. First of all, though, let's take a look at Gary Neville's response. 
Let me just translate what Edwina has said for people up and down the country, because it's a message that Conservative MPs have been entrenching in our minds for a long time. The first thing that Edwina said was that we're all, I'm OK here and we're OK here, which is the first thing that a Conservative person does and a Conservative MP, they look after themselves. The next thing that she said was, you know, go and get a job. Get back to work, you lazy sod. Get off your backside. Stop stop watching Good Morning Britain and other television programmes and go and get a job. That's well, what she said. That. It's the way in which this sort of language sort of appears... It's the way in which this sort of language appears uh, from sort of conservative uh, ministers for so long. You know, immigrants are all taking our jobs. Homeless people are all beggars on the streets. You know, they're basically alienated people. You know, you think people, I, I trust the population of this country. I work on the theory that people at home aren't sitting there lazy. They really want a good job. They really want to get good pay. They really want the mental health to be sorted. And they're not there sitting and thinking, well, I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to take the sort of chan the Chancellor's money and live off nothing, you know, live off their money for the next sort of 10, 15 years and do nothing. So to me, the language is always divisive. It's not helpful. It's something that, to be fair, we've seen now over 10 years and to be fair, previous, success, uh, previous Tory governments, it's really dangerous. We're one team in this country, we're one group of people. Honestly, to remove universal credit payments at this moment in time is brutal. Okay, Let's be Curry, clear, it, it is brutal. How is Gary Neville making a really, really strong moral case against the cut to universal credit and against Edwina Curry's divisiveness? He, he saw straight through her. Dahlia, he, he really is one of the country's most effective communicators, isn't he? I think it's super interesting that so much of the oppositional sort of political discourse that's really represented in media is coming from football, uh, for like from Marcus Rashford to like John Barnes, obviously to Gary Neville. I think that's someone who's much more literate in this world really should write something about that because I think it is uh, super interesting. And Gary Neville, he's totally right to contextualize this historically. Like this, this goes back all the way to, you know, Norman Tebbett talking about, you know, getting on your bike and, and, and finding a job in the aftermath of the 1981 riots. This, and that was, by the way, at the same time that special branch were actually in spying on union branch leaders and on union leaders uh, during his time as, as employment secretary. Uh, and it's the sort of this obsession with the idea of the, the benefits cheat, which has, you know, seeped into our culture all throughout the 90s and the, uh, the early noughties. And this is always what not just conservatives, but also sort of the neoliberal political class has always uh, trucked in sort of making what are systemic social and economic issues into personal failures. So, you know, you have, I was at an Uber demo, a demo of Uber drivers uh, earlier today. And here, you know, you have people who are working obscene and frankly, unsafe hours uh, in obscene conditions, working unsocial hours, unable to, you know, have meaningful time with their friends, with their families, because they're having to work night shifts, dealing with, you know, a lot of drunk passengers, a lot of conflict that arises from that, not even having a place to park up to use the toilet. And I think it's really, you know, it's really important to talk not just about how much people are earning, but also the way that the work that people do is organized. This is also another reason why people are, even though they're in work, are struggling to actually make ends meet. And they are having to rely on universal credit because not only is the, the work not stable enough, not only is the work deeply precarious and doesn't offer important security mechanisms like sick pay and, and, and holiday pay, but also because the cost of living is so out of whack with 
people's wages. You know, I, I saw a stat the other day that said that if minimum wage was in line with the cost of house prices, the minimum wage would be more than £30 an hour. Uh, and, you know, we can barely get the opposition to commit to half of that, to £15 an hour. Uh, I'm working on a, on a report on insecure work in the UK where even even professions that are considered to be quite middle class, like academia, you know, incredibly precarious. You have people who are literally having to pay to work when you take away the cost of living and the cost of actually getting themselves to work, the cost of transport, of childcare, of all of these things. They're actually having to pay in order to work. And that's not to mention um, the, the precarity. And so this condition where businesses are able to make their profits by reducing their labor costs and relying on the fact that people that that is then the loss of labor costs is then subsidized by things like universal credit by the state. That is not the outcome of poor choices being made by working class people. It's not a result of financial mismanagement amongst working class people. It's a combination of poor labor laws a broken union movement that has been actively broken by the Conservative Party. Uh, it's a, an outcome of atrocious public services, meaning that people are having to resort to privatised healthcare, privatised social care, privatised childcare, which is incredibly expensive. And the fact that universal credit is the last straw for so many people. So instead of actually looking at how our economy is wired in such a way that people don't have access to sustainable work, rather than looking at that and the fact that people are working more and more than ever before for less and less, as a result, the state is having to subsidize the holes that are created by that. Edwina Curry would rather talk about, you know, the bad financial decisions and the laziness and the reticence to work um, amongst working class people and that they should be plummeted into poverty by an insufficient universal credit in order to teach them a lesson about work ethic. It's the oldest trick in the book. And I was really glad to see Gary Neville putting that into its historical context. It's the same thing that has been said to working class people for decades. I'm glad that you brought up that stat, Dalia, because you said you saw it somewhere. That was put out by Navarra Media yesterday. The exact, My mind is a, is a sieve. <laughs> the, the exact stat was that if you, if average house prices have risen by, risen 43 times since the early 70s, if average wages had risen at the same rate, then average, the average hourly wage right now would be £30. So when people say, um, oh, inflation is terrible, actually they mean, you know, uh, they're fine when, when, when houses go up in prices. It's, it's just if our wages go up, that they, they, they're suddenly really worried. I thought it was a very good stat. I'm glad it's, I'm glad it's um, stuck in people's heads already. We showed you Gary Neville's, I think, really strong moral argument against universal credit. I want to go through a couple more points that I find particularly interesting and that are false in what Edwina Curry said. So the main part of, of her argument is that while 40% of people on universal credit are in work, the majority are unemployed. So she says for that 60%, so for the 60% of people who are on universal credit and don't have jobs, the solution to the cut is to get a job. Now let's put to one side whether that's possible. There are, of course, lots of communities with few jobs, lots of people on universal credit who are disabled, for whom it's very difficult to get a job, for whom not many jobs are suitable. But let's assume that all of these people can get jobs, which is magical thinking, by the way, but let's assume it for the, for the sake of argument. Would they be high-paid jobs? Probably not, right? So people who are unemployed, people who are on universal credit, tend to be people with... Um, 
access to social networks and the kind of skill set that isn't going to get them a very highly paid job. So they're going to be on low paid jobs. They will therefore be likely to still be entitled to universal credit. So they'll be the same as the 40% of people who are currently on universal credit and in work. So they'll still lose 20 quid a week. So Edwina Curry's like, if, you don't, if you're worried about the 20 quid a week loss, go get a low paid job. Even if you go get that low paid job, you'll still be 20 quid a week poorer because of this cut. The second point Curry makes is that we should aim for high wages instead of subsidizing low wages. Great. But she seems to believe that if the state cuts people's benefits, bosses will offer their workers more to make up the difference. So your boss will say, oh, are you struggling this month? I can see that, that £20 a week has gone from your income. I'll give you an extra £20. That's not how bosses work. That's not how bosses decide to pay people. They don't pay people based on what they need. They pay people based on whatever they can get away with paying them. And when we realize this, we realize that lower benefits mean bosses can get away with paying their workers less. Low benefits, low wages, not the other way around. And we can take an example to show why. So say I live in a country with high unemployment benefits, somewhere like Denmark. If my Danish boss is being a dick or refusing to increase my pay, I can quit and I can have a decent standard of living while I look for a new job. A strong welfare state, high benefits, that gives me a worker power. I can demand things from my boss, and they are quite likely to accede to some of my demands. I'll be like, oh, given that you do have an alternative, maybe I will have to increase your wages. Now, imagine I live in a country with low unemployment benefits, say the UK. If in this context my English boss is being a dick or refusing to pay me properly, I would still be free to quit, but I'd have to live off £70 a week while an advisor bullies me to apply for multiple minimum wage jobs every day. In that situation, it's the boss who has the power because my alternative to doing whatever they want is terrible, right? So that's why low benefits mean low rights in the workplace. And the examples I chose there weren't an accident. Denmark and Britain are the countries in Western Europe where workers have the highest and lowest amounts of power, respectively. The rate of unemployment benefits in European countries as a percentage of previous earnings. At the top is Denmark and Sweden. If we go back to the previous example, if in those countries your boss is being a dick, you have the option of quitting and living for a while while you're looking for a new job on either 90% or 80% of your prior income. In Britain, right at the bottom, incredibly low rates. If your boss is being an arsehole to you now, if they're trying to cut your wage or, or not offering you a fair wage, you could quit, just like you could in Scandinavia, but you'd risk living on 18% of your prior income, or after this universal credit cut, 14%. So with that as your alternative, if your boss offers you low pay, you don't have much choice but to suck it up. And that's why, Boris Johnson, if you're serious about making Britain a high-wage, high-productivity economy, like our European neighbours, you should raise benefits, not cut them. Which makes me question whether you really are that interested in levelling up after all. Let's go on to our next story. Johnson's government like to disassociate themselves from the cruel cuts implemented by the 2010 coalition government. However, for those who were subject to George Osborne's austerity agenda, the legacy of that time is far from over. More than anyone, it is Britain's disabled people who've been impoverished by a decade of Tory rule. So at Tory party conference, it was this man with cerebral palsy who challenged senior Tory Jacob Rees-Mogg. 
support as possible Rubbish. for disabled you people. took my job off me and to help people you, to find suitable you, employment you've made my life harder sorry, i earned my money and, and now i have to claim benefits that's exactly what the government is are you listening i am i've really got am. a degree i've got a physical disability not mental i spent four years getting a tutu to become a youth, a youth worker. Then, oh, you don't need youth services. Your benefits, disgraceful. The man making that very powerful point to Jacob Rees-Mogg was Dominic Hutchins. He's 43, and he explained more to the Manchester Evening News about his situation. I've had cerebral palsy since birth, but a year ago I had to go through this process of proving I'm still disabled so I can still get disability benefit. I've always been very independent. I went to university. I'm a parish councillor. I was a youth worker. I drive. But instead of talking about all the positive things I can do, at the age of 42, I had to tell them all the things I can't do. Do you know how degrading that is? And I mean, I thought it was a really powerful intervention when Jacob Rees-Mogg was there. Also a really powerful um, comment there that was in the Manchester Evening News. What that clip points out so well, and the point that man is, is making is how the legacy of 11 years of Tory government is the precise opposite of what the Conservatives, people like Edwina Curry, people like Boris Johnson, suggest it is. So what they say is that what the Tories want, we don't want people to be dependent on the welfare state. We want people to be independent. We want them to go out and work and lead fulfilling lives. Why that intervention was so powerful is he was saying, look, I wasn't actually completely dependent on the state. I had a job. I led a very fulfilling life. Yes, I got support from the state, which was necessary for me to live a fulfilling life. But then the Tories came in, they cut the job because they defunded youth services, which has had so many negative consequences, as, as we know, for the people who, who use those services. As we can see from that clip, it's also had terrible consequences for the people who worked in those services. And now what you have is this horrible gaslighting situation where the Conservatives are saying, oh, look, you're on universal credit. Have you ever thought about getting a job? You know, maybe you could go get a job. Like, I had a job. I had a job until you cut that job from me. And by the way, while I used to feel like I could contribute to society with my disability, now you make it seem like this horrible burden where I constantly have to justify my existence to someone who's, who's testing me as to whether or not I can get benefits every month. It's really, really inhumane. 
it's kind of disgusting is not a strong word for it, actually. The way that Boris Johnson and Rishi Sunak have managed to really separate themselves from the legacy of George Osborne and David Cameron, even though they haven't reversed any of those cuts. So obviously they haven't, they haven't introduced those cuts because they were introduced already. But the same people who were suffering under George Osborne and David Cameron are still suffering now because while austerity might have ended in the sense that they're not still shrinking the state, unless they reverse it, then all that pain still continues. Absolutely. And I think it's very important, again, to actually think about what is the deeper ideology that has led us to this kind of situation. A cornerstone of particularly conservative Tory capitalism is the dehumanization of people it casts out of its notion of productivity. So, you know, people who are not seen to be contributing in a particular way um, to a particular notion of the economy. And this man, you know, providing care work and yes, requiring some specialized support in order to be able to provide that care work, whilst is that something that is cherished and incredibly important to his community and the people that he has helped, it's not seen in the eyes of capitalism as productive or as, you know, economically valuable. And so it has, we have to be very clear. And I think that what was incredibly powerful about the way that he talked there was that he said, you know, I'm having to, to prove um, and, you know, prove that I can't do things. I'm having to talk about all the things that I can't do. And there he's sort of referring, in my view, to how the war on the disabled in this economy under austerity and under the legacy of austerity, which is alive and well, is that the war on disabled people is not a, an economic one. It's an ideological one because the administrative costs of means testing, which, as you mentioned, even though, you know, the, the Rishi Sunak and, and Boris Johnson haven't directly introduced more of it. They have not made any attempt to actually roll back on any on any of those those measures. And so they are still in place. The administrative cost of means testing and creating these layers of humiliating and degrading bureaucratic loopholes so that people can prove that they are really disabled enough to get support and the support that they need. The cost of that is very, very high. Um, it's, you know, it's not much less and it's potentially even more than the cost of just giving people the support that they say that they need and just trusting people that when they're asking for support in order to be able to live their fullest life, that it's because they need that support. So means testing isn't about getting the right kind of support to the people who need it. It's as effectively and efficiently as possible, as we're told. It's about A, keeping intact this myth that the state budget functions like a kind of household budget and that there's like this finite pot of money and it has to be balanced in the way that, you know, a household budget needs to be balanced, which is an ideology of Cameronite austerity that is absolutely continuing through the, particularly the Rishi Sunak model um, of, of being the, of, of uh, public finance management. Um, but it's also about perpetuating this kind of notion of like rugged individualism where the notion of needing support even though like we all rely on each other in some capacity whether we're disabled or not but the concept of needing to have some form of support whether it's from the state or whether it's from each other is is so must be made so humiliating and so degrading 
um, in order to basically send the message to society that if you have any specialist needs, if you have any specific, you know, specific needs, and you don't fit into a very particular model of, of worker, that you you aren't valued. And you know, we saw this ideological war on disabled people coming through in the pandemic when you know. Uh, the fact that elderly people and people with underlying conditions were talked about as if their deaths were inevitable, that when the fact that people with learning disabilities were more likely to be given the directions to not resuscitate them if they if they were became unconscious. So we can see through all of these these mechanisms the absolute contempt for people who are categorized as disabled and who are largely categorized in that way because the contribution that they make to society and to the world is not seen as productive in a very particular capitalist and economic way. And I think what this man's story communicates so like significantly and so importantly is that we all have something to contribute and it is not the right of the Tory party to decide whose contribution is worth keeping and whose contribution is worth facilitating and who gets left to the wayside to fend for themselves in an increasingly hostile world. All all incredibly important points. Before we move on to our final story, we should mention over on NavarraMedia.com, we've just launched our Breaking Britain series. Um, an exceptional collection of essays on, as you can imagine, um, the breakup of Britain, the different movements um, which are trying to to create independence or to to bring about a, a sort of devolution of power within the United Kingdom and the constitutional fracturing of the UK. It's getting rave reviews all over social media today. I need to have a proper sit down and and look through it tomorrow. Definitely do check that out. Let's go to our final story of the day. Dominic Raab is Britain's new Secretary of State for Justice. That means he should have a key role in rebuilding trust in the justice system after the horrific murder of Sarah Everard and England's appalling statistics for rape convictions. Unfortunately, reassurance is something a recent interview Raab gave to the BBC will not provide. Let's take a look. I just want to start with something that we heard the Prime Minister say on this programme yesterday. He said, speaking to us live on Breakfast yesterday, he does not support calls to make misogyny a hate crime. What's your view on that? Well, look, uh, I think we have often seen in the criminal justice system over decades people trying to legislate away what is an enforcement problem. So I think insults and misogyny is, of course, uh, absolutely wrong, whether it's uh, a man against a woman uh, or, or a woman against a man. But, but I don't think that will tackle the problem in the cases like either the Sarah Everard case, which is very serious and we take very seriously, or the wider challenge of getting more prosecutions through to a successful conviction for violence against women and girls. So it, 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 I understand why people raise it. it it's, a, it's, a, it's a legitimate uh, issue and debate to have, but I don't think that will solve the problem that we've got or indeed give confidence to the many women who, after the Sarah Everard case, I think are very fearful, uh, anxious, and need positive reassurance and need the kind of action that will fix the problem. In that clip, in response to being asked whether misogyny should be made a hate crime, Rob answers, misogyny is absolutely wrong, whether it's a man against a woman or a woman against a man. The host of that clip gave Rob an opportunity to clarify his, his comment. She also reads to him the definition of misogyny. We can get this up for you now. Um, so misogyny means the dislike of, contempt for, or ingrained prejudice 
against women. Raab, in response, refused to retract his statement. Now, that makes it clear this wasn't just an accident. This seems to be something Raab believes, that the definition of misogyny is, is wrong or should be ignored. And historically, we, we have reason to, to believe this might be for ideological reasons, because ingrained prejudice, which is specifically targeted at women, is something Raab refuses to recognize exists. In 2011, he said the following, from the cradle to the grave, men are getting a raw deal. Feminists are now amongst the most obnoxious bigots. So I'll repeat that again. In 2011, he said, from the cradle to the grave, men are getting a raw deal. Feminists are now amongst the most obnoxious bigots. So you can imagine why he now has this very strange definition of misogyny. Those comments I've just read to you were put to Rob in 2019 during his campaign to become Tory leader. I've got a track record in my working career of standing up for women's rights. As a trainee lawyer, I took, case, I took a case to the European Court of Human Rights in Strasbourg defending women's rights. And as a, uh, a war crimes international lawyer, uh, trying to bring people to justice for the very worst crimes against women on the battlefield. Do you stand by that comment, though, that some feminists are obnoxious bigots? Well, the point I was making is that I think sexism is wrong and it's wrong whether it's said about a woman or about a man. And I think equality is too precious a value for us to put up with double standards. So I do think we should call hypocrisy out in, in political debate and political life. Would you describe yourself as a feminist? No, probably not. But I would describe myself as someone who's a champion of equality and meritocracy. And, you know, my wife and I are a two-salary couple. Uh, I support her as much as she supports me. And I'm all for working women, making the very best of their potential. And that's something that's really important to me. Are you a feminist? No, but I'm all for working women. What, what decade is this guy living in? What century is this guy living in? Sounds like kind of a woke guy from the 1950s. Oh, no, I'm not a feminist, but I, I'm in favour of women having jobs. What, what, what yeah. did you make of I mean, Rob's comments both this morning and, and those historic ones? Out of line with my definition of feminism, I'm all for women having a nice time rather than having a job. But, <laughs> um, but I, I mean, he's an immensely creepy man. I, I don't have to listen to what he said in order to understand that he has absolutely no regard for the things that actually, no regard, no understanding of the notion that when you have systemic inequality, you have to implement measures that are specifically to remedy that inequality uh, and that, you know, the society that we live in is not gender neutral. And but when you look at, you know, the things that he's done, not only has this man tried to scrap the gender pay audit multiple times, he's also been a vocal opposer of the Human Rights Act, which is incredibly ironic, given that he was using his experience in the European Court of Human Rights as an example of how pro-feminist he is. I'm using as an, an example of his experience there as a, as a trainee lawyer. The Human Rights Act has been an essential legislative and political tool used by feminists in, in this country in order to do things like get greater rights for elderly women in care homes, in order to make cases against violence against women and girls. It's been an incredibly important tool. But I also think there's something very important about what he said, which isn't just this idea of, you know, oh, um, you know, not really understanding what misogyny is, but also this very particular slant of which it feels like the kind of soft edge of sort of men's rights activism, incel, sort of Jordan Peterson style discourse, which essentially positions 
feminism and in turn women gaining greater economic and political and social rights as being the reason that as being something that is dispossessing and disaffecting uh, young men, which as we know, when it's taken to its extreme end, has very, very violent, horrific consequences. So the, the positioning of feminism and women's rights in opposition to 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 men in this way, uh, it speaks rather than, you know, disaffection and disillusionment amongst young men probably is a result of the fact that we live in an incredibly alienating world with horrific mental health services. Um, and I think that rather occupying the soft edge of this is really, really scary to me because we know that there is a generation of young disaffected men who are being radicalized, particularly online, by these kinds of talking points. And when you see, even though it's perhaps the softer edge of it, when you see, you know, him talking about feminists being obnoxious bigots, you are seeing a, a justification and a sort of a, a dog whistle towards a, a, a sort of political movement that is happening underground that is gaining increasing power and is incredibly concerning. The way you framed it isn't as concerned as we should be, because you sort of said, yeah, this is, a, this is the soft edge of men's rights activism, right? From the cradle to the grave, men are getting a raw deal. He's not like the most extreme incel out there. But at the same time, he is in charge of our justice system. So, so being, being at the soft edge of men's rights activism isn't much of a consolation if he's literally in charge of the justice system. And I said, you know, I, I shouldn't actually laugh about this because our justice system is shockingly appalling to women and especially women who are subject to sexual violence. So, I mean, uh, how much harm do you think he can do in that position? What he says in public, what he says, you know, on TV is going to be a very, very pale imitation of what he actually believes behind closed doors. What, what we saw there, what, which was quite horrifying, was a kind of polished media version of what he really thinks. And that's why I thought it was really important to bring up how this ideology, which takes on this myth, it's essentially like a feminism is cancer, but like buttoned up in a suit and talk and saying it on, you know, ITV news, that that is actually making its way into his political positions, which, as you have noted, are going to have a massive impact on, on women's lives. It's one thing for, you know, someone to scream extremist things into the void of the Internet. It's another thing for someone who, you know, we don't know what his personal beliefs behind closed doors are, but they're probably worse than they are than what he's said publicly, being holding the reins of power. And we see this in things like, you know, opposition to the Human Rights Act, which is going to make it much more difficult for feminists and women specific groups and gender justice groups to push for the kinds of changes that we need in order to make the world, in, well, to make this country at least, a more equitable place for, for women and gendered minorities. A brilliant note to end the show on. He's not showing much for it. We will be back on Friday at 7pm. For now, you've been watching Tisky Sour on Navarra Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navarra Media. Go to navaramedia.com slash support.